Welcome to the History of Eye Care, the podcast that takes a deep dive into the evolution of modern eye care. We'll hear the stories of today's thought leaders, innovators, and legends. By exploring the past, we can better shape the future. From anterior segment and refractive surgery to retina, plastics, and glaucoma, no part of eye care's rich history will be left in the dark. Here's your host, Dr. Morgan Micheletti, an eye surgeon and curious historian who is ready to uncover the landmark moments and untold stories that have revolutionized eye care. Let's dive in. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the History of Eye Care. I'm your host, Dr. Morgan Micheletti, and I'm ready to guide you on another exciting adventure as we look at the history of our field. Today, we're joined by Dr. Tom Odin, whose name has become almost synonymous with cataract surgery education. He is currently the clinical professor of ophthalmology and the deputy director of the VA. He currently is at the University of Iowa, where he's a clinical professor of ophthalmology, the associate residency director, and the deputy director of the VA there. And he's had just an incredible career in educating so many well-known ophthalmologists very excited to have you here today on the show with us, Tom. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, first off, it's a funny thing to be invited to a history of something because it means you're getting some gray hair. It means that you've seen some things that people haven't seen, like you, for example, maybe haven't seen. And you always have to be worried. Yeah, I'd be a little bit nervous about talking about things from the past because you can begin to see people's eyes kind of glaze over. You know, and, you know, when I talk about the old days, the residents are like, whatever, who cares? And so I appreciate that you're willing to listen. And at least in this format, people can turn it off, right? And they can watch something else. So, but yeah, I know I appreciate it. I appreciate all the stuff you've been doing. I I know you've been very, very active in our various organizations that we have. And and I know it takes a lot of work. So thank you for doing all that stuff and your cool projects you're working on, your innovative projects. So thanks for that stuff. Well, yeah, I mean, I've I've been in this business for, I came on as a resident here at Iowa in 91-ish or so. I've been here pretty much ever since. There was a brief period of time I was in private practice. So, you know, I got like 30 years into me or something in this business. And so, and a lot has changed during that time. So, so maybe it's worth talking about some of that. Absolutely. So tell us about, you know, so you started in medical school. When did you decide you wanted to go into medicine? I mean, what made you decide medicine and then ophthalmology? And what point did you decide you wanted to transition from a military career, because I know that you were you were in the Air Force before, into a career in medicine, or, or was it kind of, did those occur at the same time? Well, yeah, I, I had the luxury or the good fortune of having a father who was career Air Force. And not only that, he was he was an educator in the Air Force. So he had his, the Air Force paid for his doctorate degree in education, and he was very involved in a lot of cool stuff in the Air Force. And so I had that background. And then it turns out that I was able to get an Air Force scholarship for college, which allowed me to go to Duke, where I really had a good experience. And it, you know, it was it was kind of expensive, of course, to go there. And it was great for my father because as a career military guy, he didn't have a ton of money. And so it, it really worked out well. My father's educational sort of interests really came into play later when I got into uh what I'm doing now in uh, teaching and ophthalmology. But at the time, I didn't think it was important at all. I just thought some of the Air Force stuff was cool and and so wanted to give it a try. I went to Duke University. I was in, in the engineering school. I was I studied, I was very interested in in artificial intelligence back in those days, which was is an absolute joke now. But we in those days we would set up some program and then come back like three days later and the results would spit out. And so I was interested in in engineering really. And that's what I was going to do. I was going to do something in computer science or engineering. 
I went to the Air Force, had my first assignment in Boston because Boston was where all the action was in computer science and artificial intelligence and also in electronics. And I was an officer working on avionic systems for tactical planes like F-15s and F-16s, stuff like that. And the job was good. I enjoyed a lot. I learned a lot about how to give talks and how to how to manage things, how to take a meeting and uh, make it look like you were busy in the meeting, you know, that kind of stuff, which has been very useful in, in academic medicine. But in parallel with that, my wife was Marguerite, who I met at Duke, was in medical school. And so I was hearing about all the cool stuff she was doing. And that's with that, I, I, I sort of got jealous about what she was up to and what she was doing. After my active duty time in the Air Force, which was four years, I transitioned to a graduate program in engineering. And I thought I was going to be a professor of engineering or something like that, or working industry. And that's when I really got more involved in artificial intelligence in that master's degree. But I still was watching all these cool things my wife was doing. And it was got a little bit lonely behind the computer terminal. And so then I decided I was going to go and I thought I would go into medicine and I would combine the engineering and the medicine together in some way. And so I transitioned from engineering grad school to medical school at Duke. And then I kind of just kept on that medicine path. And I'll, you're probably aware of this, but for a while, AI was really dead as a field. It just, it just didn't, wasn't going anywhere. And so I kind of lost interest in some ways in that and was more interested in sort of the medical school stuff. And I got really interested in ophthalmology. And partially because I'd been studying neural networks when I was in grad school and I was interested in the retinal neural networks. And so I thought that was cool. But partially also just because it's just a cool field, right? I and mean, it's just really neat. It's fun to have direct application of optics. And so I think it fits in nicely with engineering. And so I transitioned to med school and then met some really cool people at Duke, uh, like Bruce Shields, for example, who's gone on to do wonderful things. And he was a big mentor of mine, sort of a role model for me. And I came to the program here for residency at Iowa and kind of stuck here. The thing that really struck me a lot in terms of education, how do you educate people, was how good they do it in the Air Force and how good they do it in engineering and how crummy we do it in medicine. Just terrible, right? And that really struck me a lot. So, so when I went to med school, I was just shocked by how terrible the education was in those first few years. I mean... And just to give you an example of what drove me crazy was you'd have some lecture that had absolutely nothing to do with the goals and objectives of a course, right? It was just what that, what, they could find some professor who was willing to give a couple hours and that guy talked about what was interesting to him or her, at least back in the old days. And it was so funny. And then you take the test and the test had nothing to do with what the lectures were. And so it struck me how different it was than engineering, where, where sort of the goals and objectives and the assessments and the resources were always so nicely lined up. And then, you know, I watched in the Air Force how, you know, you could take these guys right out of college, right? Right out of college. And then a year and a half later, they're flying F-16s. I mean, it's amazing. So, you know, Morgan, you come out of college and like nine years later, we're saying, okay, you can operate, you can do FACO. Nine years later. And is it that much harder to do FACO than to fly an F-16? I don't think so. So I think that what, what struck me was just how incredibly inefficient and sort of misguided the educational system was, at least the path I was on. And I think it's gotten better over the years. And so... How has it changed? I mean, how, how do you feel like that's changed over the years? Well, I know there's a little bit more emphasis. There's been, there's been more influence by professional educators in medical school where there's a, I think there's a slightly better alignment of the objectives of a course with the resources of a course, with the assessments of a course. 
as opposed to like we'd have a lecture on the the brown fat of a flying squirrel or something because there was a guy at Duke that was really into that. And those little squirrels are interesting, you know, because they've they got a lot of energy, you know, they got the brown fat in there and, and they, they they never get fat. But it was never the brown fat of the flying squirrel was never on the test. You know, it was not important. It's just what the guy would lecture on. And then what I discovered was that at medical school, that there was this whole world of old tests that existed. And once you broke into sort of the good old boy or good old girl network that had a hold of these old tests, then you could find out what the true objectives of the course were. And then you understood what to study. And the thing that was so different about like the Air Force or engineering is in those fields, you give those things first. You're not scared to give the objectives and goals first. And then you say, okay, you know, our goal is for you to learn about this particular thing. And here's the resources to learn about this particular thing. And the surprise of all is the test is going to be on that stuff. And so what I've what I've tried to do, and I haven't done a perfect job of this, but I've tried to figure out ways to align objectives, resources, and assessments for the specific things that I'm doing, like, like cataract surgery. And I, I have found it to be very powerful. I found that if you line those things up, it can help people learn faster, get better. It can allow you to communicate in a way that makes more sense. And a lot of that I credit to the Air Force, and a lot of that I credit to my father, who is, who is into this stuff. You know, that was his, his field of expertise. Anyway, that's what I spent the last, you know, the last 20 or 30 years in surgical education, at least trying to line up those things. It still takes too long to learn. You know, it's, I mean, it's not like we can crank people out any faster in Iowa than you can anywhere else, but we can try to get them better and we can get them better faster and we can make it safer, I think. So yeah, that's been my, my weird little quest. Yeah. Was there any moment in particular that you felt that surgical education or medical education took a turn for the for the better, you know, was brought into the modern era? I mean, was there any particular, you know, was it a FACO machine or something or was it just was it more of a thought process? Well, from the educational point of view, I think higher bandwidth Internet was the key. When I started, we put we try to put educational content on the Internet and we would use sources like our iRound site or we would use we have a Facebook cataract surgery site. We'd use, we'd use those things to put the content on there. We, well, we were really early adopters in that. I mean, we were way, way ahead of time. You know, we, could, we could pick any URL we wanted. We could pick, you know, nobody, nobody was competing in that, in that space. But the problem was you put a video on there and it would take hours to upload, hours. And then a lot of people couldn't even look at the videos because it was like, well, I can't look at a video. I don't have enough power on my, um, much bandwidth to look at a video online. But eventually it became amazing how much bandwidth there was. I mean, the idea of watching a TV show like Netflix 20 years ago, you know, having that come through your internet was unbelievable. You're too young to know, but we used to, used to first watch movies and, and you, you download it for like 30 minutes or 45 minutes first before you watch the show to get a bulk of, just to get enough in there so that then you could continuously watch the show. And that was a big deal. That was only like, I don't know, 15 years ago or something. Yeah, I remember downloading, you know, 3.5 megabytes for a for a song in, in middle school to burn my CD. <laughs> so, you know, I can't even imagine. I mean, I remember the textbooks we shared and, and, you know, the materials we shared in med school alone, you know, they're in the gigabytes now. Having to go to, to the library to check those out, I'm sure would be very different. When you think back on your education, I mean, what what was your primary mode of, of learning? How was it in medical school? Was it all just you'd go to the library and get textbooks? and? Well, in, in the library, there were lectures and then these secret old tests I was telling you about. And then there were some, there were textbooks and there were some handouts. 
there was no video content. There was very little multimedia content, you know, pictures or anything that were organized. When I started in residency, there was beginning to be some multimedia stuff. Like there were no CDs or DVDs at that time, but there were some big discs that were like, you know, 12 inches. And we had a professor, Robert Fulberg here, who put a bunch of pathology content on that. But you had to go to the library to use it. There's no way you could you could do that remotely. As that got better and better, we began to dream more about the idea of having some multimedia website or some multimedia mechanism to get content initially to our residents, but also to, to the world. When I first started, we were putting videos on, on something called Google Play. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. It's a predecessor to, to YouTube. You'd upload a video overnight, like a two-minute, here's how you do a Rexus with a, with a needle video. And then that they would call you or they would they would email you and they would say, hey, we've checked out your video. There's no porn on it. We're going to go live. You know, it was a real person. It was interacting with a real person because it was, you know, that shows you how rare it was, you know. And uh, and then you put this little video on and people would go nuts. Anybody that had some bandwidth, like that worked at a university or worked in the military or something like that, they'd be able to see a video. And then somebody would be telling them how to do a Rexus. Because before, the only way you could do it was you'd have to have a DVD or, or in those days, it was a tape. And you'd pass these tapes around to people. So the way I, the way I learned how to do extra caps, because we learned on extra caps, was there was a video that we passed from resident to resident on a tape, VHS tape. And we'd pass it around. It was like, oh, my God, don't lose the tape. Don't screw up the tape, you know. And be kind and rewind, right? That's what I remember. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it would be a tape. <laughs> and these surgeries would be like, they were horrible, like an hour long. There's no editing, right? There's no editing. You're not going to edit that thing. That would be it. I mean, there'd just be one and it would become the gold standard. And so to me, the giant, the giant thing was the ability to have bandwidth. And then the cool thing was at about the same time, the ability to edit your content easily yourself. So you don't have to ask anybody for help. Because there's nothing more frustrating than working with somebody else that knows how to edit if you don't. So the early editing programs were really tricky. It would be, you know, an old clunky computer that had a happened to have an analog interface. And so you may or may not have enough expertise yourself to do it. But now you could anybody can get one of these programs and edit a video. It's it's a trivial thing to edit a video. Especially young folks like you that, that have done this all your life. It's absolutely nothing. But early on, it was a big deal. And so the combination of being able to edit your videos yourself as the surgeon and the combination of being able to upload them just allowed the ability to share information. And so we started doing that. We also did a lot on this site called iRounds. And that was another big thing for us because, what, and this is going to sound funny, but what we what we discovered with iRounds, which was to me revolutionary, was the the idea that number one, content is king. So it's content. People crave content. Distribution of content became absolutely unimportant, easy to do. So organizations like Ascris, the Academy, their whole life was distributing content that they thought was special, right? Or that their committee thought was special. And so that meant that if you were some junior professor at Iowa that nobody knew about, like, like me, for example, and you wanted to get your content through the academy, you had to go through some obscure committee and they had to say it was okay. And then they would try to change it. And, and it was just too much trouble, right? It's still kind of yeah, like that, at least with the, yeah. with the one network. And, um, but, 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 you, but you, you know, of course, you, you know this very well. You could put your beautiful videos 
online. You have your own little following and the world will decide what is or isn't important with a variety of likes or dislikes or subscriptions or whatever. That really changed things because it allowed people to sort of get things out quicker and not have to go through months and months of committees that approved it or whatever. I'm so glad you brought up iRounds. So for those for those who don't know what we're talking about, it's iRounds.org. I'm pretty sure almost every resident that I know has been to. I know I looked at it a lot when I was when I was in training and still sometimes to this day when I see something interesting and you know I'm searching and, and want an extra resource. It's it's a phenomenal resource and primarily case-based, which is awesome. You know, and I think it's great. So I know you're kind of talking now about how that kind of came along, but who was the brains behind that? Well, we we had a resident here named Andy Doan who is a super, super cool guy. He's now a captain in the Navy. He was just in charge of all the medical care for the Eisenhower Carrier Group. So a super cool guy. When he was here as a resident, he and I were tight. Maybe because of the military background, I don't know, but whatever. I, I just love this guy. And he was the kind of guy that you could say, hey, Andy, uh, on our website that we're thinking about, could you do this? And then overnight, he would work on it. And then the next morning, he would say, Remember when you just casually mentioned this thing? Here it is. It's like, whoa, whoa. And then he started thinking, oh my God, I gotta be careful what I tell this guy to do because he's gonna stay up all night <laughs> and do it. And so we worked together starting iRounds because we had all this content because we did rounds every single morning at, at Iowa. And we just threw it away. And then we he worked with Lee Allward, who is quite an educational innovator and came up with that case-based format. And then those two things together, a format and sort of the idea of putting them online came to be the beginning of, of iRounds. And originally we produced it on one of these blogger, there was a blogger site where you could do your own website. And so we had our own little website and we were doing it on blogger and it started growing and growing. In those days, any good content was precious. And the other thing that was so important in those days was there was a period of time when if you wanted to get onto a website, there was a tendency for that website to want to find out your email address and have you subscribe, which always annoyed me, but it also annoyed the Google crawler, which was trying to find content, right? So if you had a bunch of good content that was behind one of those password things, then the Google crawler couldn't get to it, couldn't get past it. And so what we found out by not having any sort of password there, and not just giving out the information. We didn't care. We didn't, we didn't want people's email address. What are we going to do with them anyway? And so what we found out is we quickly became number one in everything on Google because, you know, the Academy expected you to have a password. Ask Chris expected you to have a password. Almost every other university wanted a password. And so we just quickly became the first page. Uh, and, you, and our expectation was really we should be one of the first two or three on the very first page of any search for an eye-related thing. We're still close, although the Academy has a lot of content that doesn't require a, a password anymore. And so they kind of learned that lesson too. We were just like five, 10 years ahead of them. It's fascinating to think about that though. I mean, that that you would search the web and every single site you click on, you'd basically have to register. Yeah, and it was, it was common. It was common then because everybody thought that the key was going to be to garner email addresses. And so our philosophy was, we don't care about that. What we want is we want to be the source for information. We're, we're in this little teeny town in the middle of nowhere in, in, in the United States. And we want people to think high quality content, Iowa. That was our goal. High quality content, Iowa. We want, we want you to think uh, those things together. Or I rounds high quality content. 
But one of the interesting things, I think you'll think it's interesting. We had put up a case and we had some links in the bottom of the case. And those links were, you could buy a book. So if you referenced a book, you could buy the book. And in the early versions of iRounds, we had our own little site. So we weren't controlled at all by the university. We could do whatever we wanted. And so we needed some money for cameras and crap like that. And so we wanted a way to generate some income in those days, but we didn't want to have ads. And so when people would buy, for example, Nerad's, Jeff Nerad's Prequisites book on, on plastic surgery, which was a classic book, they'd go through there and they'd buy the book. Well, we'd get like $4 just for referring the person over there. But Jeff Nerad, who wrote the book, who's got the office, had the office right down here for me, he'd get like $2.60. And so we made more from referring than he did from doing the book. And then the lights went off on us. We said, oh my God, there's no respect for the content makers. There's no respect at all. It's all the distributors and the sellers. And so then our goal became more clear. We we're like, we are going to eliminate all these middlemen and we're going to get the content providers connected with the people that want to see the content. And so that became our quest. And what we started doing after that was then we would get our alumni to give us money. And so our alumni gave us money. And then we would give our residents a little bit of money, like a hundred bucks or 150 bucks or something for a case. And, you know, it doesn't sound like that much, but at least you give a hundred bucks to a resident and at least they can go home and tell their husband or wife, let's go out to dinner. I'm not a total loser. I did something and I can take you out to dinner. The power of a hundred dollars is, is, should not be underestimated, especially if you can give it to them in like a, with a cash bill, that's the best thing of all, but at least a check that's just for them, you know, here's a hundred bucks. And so that was very powerful too, to get people to do cases. Cause why should they give us a case? But we were all of a sudden one of the few content distributors that was directly interacting with the content provider in a way that was not just, Hey, we'll make you famous if you just put your stuff on our site. Because you could put your own stuff on your own site, right? What we're doing is we're saying, hey, we've already got this site. We want the University of Iowa and our alumni to be proud of us. And so if you produce some content for us, you can take your, your spouse out for dinner. And so that's that's how we got so many of those cases. Some of the residents went crazy and some of them didn't care. You know, whatever. It's their choice. Yeah. That's awesome. I think that's great. I mean, the, the again, this is this is a history show, right? I mean, I want to, the the history of of Irons is pertinent. I mean, that I think that's really cool because again, we've all used it and been there and and learned from it. So, in thinking about learning, I mean, Tom, your your name is synonymous with cataract education. What do you think? I mean, like, what drove you to this career? I know we talked a little bit about your father, but was there other things that drove you down this path to academic medicine? Because you know, the world was your oyster. You could have done anything you wanted to, but you have a passion for this. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, I, I do think it's nice to have a little chip on your shoulder, you know, in life. And so I definitely didn't feel like the system was very good. I felt like I didn't get treated as well as I could have as I went through the system in terms of safety for patients and, and how to learn. And then I think fortunate in some ways for me as a teacher is I wasn't a natural learner. You know, some people just have these very natural hands and very it's very easy for them. For me, it wasn't that easy. I had to work at it a little bit. And so I think that's useful too, because then you start thinking about what can I do to make myself better? How did I make myself better? How can I, how can this person I'm trying to teach get better? And so I think it was, it was a combination of those things. And I really just, I also, I thought our VA was not that safe, to be honest with you. I didn't think the way we were throwing residents in the middle of this was not safe. And I think as a, as a veteran and as a 
somebody that loves the military and, and what people have done for uh, that go to VAs for our country. I just wanted to make it better. I wanted it to be I wanted it to be just as good or better at the VA than it was you know, anywhere else. I always thought it was so funny that people that went to the university back in the old days, all they had to do was live past 65. They got Medicare and they were special. Whereas these guys that had fought in, in those days in World War II and Korean War and stuff were considered less special. The delivery of healthcare wasn't quite as good over there. And so I really had this sense I wanted to make it super good. And, and I think I'm not the only one that felt that way. There's a lot of people that sort of have moved the VA, the VA forward. So those are the chips I had on my shoulder when I came in. That's the, those are the, the little weird backstories that I, I do think they're sort of powerful to get at, to understand people. And so I came back with that in mind and I was going to try to make it better. And what struck me the most was how unstructured the training was. And so I'll give you an example. So, and what I'd say one of the, one of the people that was really important for me in this early training was Andy Lee. I don't know if you know Andy Lee, but he's a wonderful, brilliant man whose early career was in education. His early career was the program director at Baylor. And he was very, very into structured training. And so he came to Iowa a few years after I came. And I was sort of beginning to do these structured things, but I didn't understand exactly how to do it or how to how to word it in a way that people other people could understand. And so when he caught wind of it, he was so excited about it. And it sounds weird, but you know, sometimes when you're working on something and no one seems to care, it just takes one excited person that you respect to sort of get you over the hump to start moving forward. And to me, he was that excited person. I had this simulation lab over at the VA and I would talk about it. Nobody cared. We don't need that. You know, that's stupid. We never had a simulation lab, but he was so excited about that. He just thought it was the greatest thing in the world. And so it may be like your, your invention of that punch, you know, and, and if you think it's cool, but you need a few other people. I, for example, think it's cool. You need a few other people that sort of give you some sense that it's cool. Unless you're extremely confident and unbelievably confident, you need some people to sort of push you a little bit. So anyway, he, he helped me quite a bit. And so basically the idea was that we didn't have any simulation. We didn't have any structure. We didn't have any resources that were sort of common to everybody as they went through the program. And when you have, when you have structure and you have common resources, then you can start talking about them in a way that, that you know each trainee has seen these things, each trainee understands where you're going. And so our very first thing was a was just a book with a series of goals and objectives and then DVDs for each goal and objective. And, and here's the movie for this thing, the movie for that thing. And then eventually it evolved into more of a web-based thing. And so if people want to look at one of the structured things we did was if you just Google Iowa wet lab, you'll see this very structured 10-week program we have for the very junior residents on how do you do the wet lab and which videos to look at and that kind of stuff? I think that's great because I feel like I benefited significantly from a wet lab structured course. And speaking to some of the older residents who came before me, I mean, way, way older, they used to say, oh, well, our wet lab is upstairs on the third floor at Grady. That's where we that's where we train. And we transitioned from that. I mean, before we could even operate on a real patient, we had to do so many, you know, on pig eyes. I mean, a lot, like a lot, a lot and had to be signed off on them. And so it, it very, like you said, it changed from a really putting the patient first and patient safety being elevated at the 
same time we were doing extra training. When did that start taking off? And what are your thoughts on when we're looking at wet labs, pig eyes versus these model eyes that we now have that are great and virtual reality? I mean, what are your thoughts on all of this? Well, I, I, you know, I think the beautiful situation now is we have all these different choices for simulation, which go from things that are very specific to a wet lab, like pig eyes, Deer eyes we've used, you know, some um, countries they use goat eyes, sheep eyes, but I, you know, actual animal products. And then some people can afford to get those ICs, which are useful for some parts of simulation. But the giant game changer, the recent giant game changer are the simulated eyes. And the reason the simulated eyes are such a huge thing is you don't have to have a wet lab. You don't have to have $300,000 in outlay like you do for the IC. And you can bring those things to your OR. It's the most unbelievable game changer in simulation in, in the years I've, that I've been here. Other than, the fa- other than the idea of structured simulation, these devices are unbelievable. And so they allow, let's say that I want to try your punch, which I do want to try, by the way. How do I do that? Well, I, I, I want to do it in, a, in, a, in an eye that's similar to what I'm going to operate on. I want to do it in the OR that's similar to where I'm going to be. I want to use most of the instruments I'm used to using, which are sized for a human eye, not sized for a pig eye or a deer eye or whatever. And so at the end of the day, at the end of the OR day, you've got all your stuff there. You can pull out a semi and just do it, just practice and play with it. They can't argue that it's wrong because of some sort of cadaver product or some sort of animal product. That really has made a huge difference. And they're not that expensive. It's like, you know, 30 or $40 or pounds, depending on which one you get. And uh, there's four companies that make them. And so I, I think that that has been the biggest game changer. But what happened, I think, in training was, at least in our program, one of the most important concepts or ideas is that if there's no group of people that you think are not special, right? It's an important concept. So if you think that everybody you treat is just as special as everybody else, then you better have a really good way to train people. Right? You better have really good simulation. And I know that at Grady, I know you, Seth, and I know that crowd. I know you guys absolutely value those patients. I know that you don't think they're less special than the patients at Emory or anywhere else. And so that's one of the beauties of your program is you have this place where, where you operate, but you think they're special. You think they're important. And so you're going to prepare as best you can. And some of the early papers on, on sort of learning curve, of course, came from Emory. You know, the classic paper where at 80 cases, your learning curve gets better. That's your memory. But I think I think the point is that once you say in your mind, I really don't think that there's any group of patients that are less special than other patients. So therefore, I can't just throw people over there and practice on these people. Because I wouldn't have them practice on my father or my mother. So why would I have them practice on these people that are less special? So once you make that determination, then you've got to, as a program, come up with a plan. And to be honest with you, in the old days, that was the plan. There's less special people, you operate on them. And whether it's because they don't have money or because they're disadvantaged in some way or whatever. And it was kind of hush-hush. You never talked about it, right? But I think once you make the decision everybody's equal, then you come up with a plan. And the most obvious thing is simulation. And one of the disappointments I've had over my career is it's a little bit hard to get the big companies like Alcon, Bosch & Loam interested in simulation. They should be the most interested, right? So like when you buy a fighter jet, wherever, Boeing or General Dynamics or whatever, 
you get the simulator with it. I mean, you, you don't think about the simulator later. You don't 10 years later say, hey, you know, we need a simulator. We need to teach people how to, you know, you're thinking about the simulator the same time you're buying the plane. Matter of fact, the simulator may come out before the plane comes, right? Which makes sense because you got you got to train your people. So the idea of sort of structured simulation, learning how to do it, has unfortunately not been aggressively adopted by the companies that make the fake machines. Although it's better now than it was. It's better than it was. But it's it was there was no real attention to that. There was, there was some money that was thrown to the educators, but it was their it was our problem. It wasn't their problem. So even when you look at the IC, the IC, which is the all digital simulator, there's no sort of screen on the IC that looks like one of the products that you'll use. It's just some made up thing, and uh, and so it could be a much more robust simulator, but it's not because there just hasn't been buy in. So all, all that being said, it's better now than it was before, but it still generally falls on the shoulders of the academic programs to do this training, this early training. There's not a lot of push from industry because there's not a lot of push from, except for these artificial eye industry people. I mean, just imagine if 20 years ago, Alcon started working on artificial eyes, just aggressively working on it. Saying, if we said, we're not going to buy any of your machines unless you give us 20 really good artificial eyes a day or something, whatever, whatever it is, which is kind of what the military would do, right? The military would say, we're not going to just throw guys in planes. We're going to have them learn somehow. We're going to simulate this process. I think what's happened now is fortunately, these other little companies have somehow survived. We've kind of tried to keep them in business and academics. And now there's four little companies that are producing simulated eyes. They're doing well, I think. I mean, they seem to be doing pretty well. Yeah, I think a couple of points on that. First of all, I think the, we're going to see some more advancement in innovation because with these model eyes, I mean, whether it's practicing a modified way to take out an IOL or sure the punch, I mean, I did that hundreds of hundreds of times in these model eyes in my OR after at the end of the day, and you can rinse and repeat as many times and, and there's no mess and it's just a great, great way to practice. And so not only from an educational standpoint, but from an innovation standpoint, I think that's really helped us kind of take the next step. I think it'd be interesting to see what would happen if one of our organizations helped bring the, some of the industry together to make like a, like you said, like some sort of module that would kind of be a little more ubiquitous for training. I'm sure you're, you're, you've probably been involved in this. The one thing that's moving forward is the AUPO score project, which is a project where they're trying to come up with a sort of centralized content and centralized wet lab process. And I think, I think that has come partially in the same frustration that you were just mentioning, where we wanted to sort of figure out a way so that we, we could say across the country, every ophthalmologist that graduates will have, will know these words, these terms, these mechanisms move forward. And at least we'll have played with these artificial lenses so that they're more comfortable doing them in their, in their space. I want to talk about one thing that I think we all, as many of us as ophthalmologists know, I think there's been some articles about it, but it kind of goes to patient safety and, and that's kind of this hidden surgeon, the switching seats thing. I mean, it happens, it's different in ophthalmology, right? Because in general surgery, you have kind of all hands in and whether it's you doing it or the surgeon say, hey, tie that right there, do that. But in ophthalmology, it's an actual seat change, right? When you're moving to the primary scope from the side scope. I do think it's important for our patients to know that residents are involved in the surgery. And as a result of that, we may have an advantage in Iowa because our patients, we're the only training program in the state. And so people take pride in our program and they come here knowing that, which is an advantage we have. But yeah, I mean, the patients may or may not know 
exactly who's doing what step or whatever, but I always make sure that they know that this resident that's with me is involved in surgery and parts of it. I'll tell you the shocking thing that I've learned over the years is how much you can do through the paracentesis. I mean, it is just unbelievable. I mean, if you just have somebody just hold the phaco needle steady, you can pretty much do the whole case through the paracentesis. And then you can do, you know, you can introduce instruments and do the IA, the whole IA through the paracentesis. I have this funny video I like to show where it's something about Bill, I think is the name of the movie, but basically they wanted to take him sailing, but they didn't trust him. So they, they just wrapped him up with ropes and tied him to the mast so he couldn't move at all. And he said, I'm sailing, I'm sailing, because he's not doing anything. And to a certain extent, I think the process of bringing people in involves setting some real safety checks early on. And so one of them is you just use, you can't use two hands at first, right? You can barely use two feet at first. Sometime I'll, I'll take over the microscope control, but usually you just keep the microscope where it is because they can accommodate and then they just have to use the one pedal. But the second hand, there's no way at first people can use the second hand right away. And so it's like a 20 to 50 case in kind of thing. And once you get good at that as, as the teacher, you can um, chop. They just hold the phaco needle in, in front of the nucleus. You can chop to the second hand. You always have a paresthesis even for left eyes. You can bring pieces up to them. You can use the nucleus cracker. You can do a shocking amount without switching places. But if you do switch places, I don't think it's the end of the world. But I, I will say that as I've gotten more experience as a, as a teacher, I have an absolutely super low threshold to take over for a little bit. So I take over for a little bit and come back, take over a little bit and come back. Whereas I used to feel like as, an, as a junior teacher that I had to let them do it and get into trouble. I don't think that anymore. I'm not interested in them getting into trouble. I'm interested in the patient getting out safely. And then maybe as a side effect of that, the resident learns some stuff. That's a side effect. That's not the primary mission. Anyway, I, I hear what you're saying. It's tricky. It's tricky business. Even to this day, I still have patients who, who ask me, they say, you're the one doing the surgery, right? And it's like, I don't have a resident. So yes, it's going to be me. Well, the problem is you, you know? look so young. I mean, I hate to say it. That's the problem. <laughs> you get some gray hair. No one's going to wonder who's doing it, right? But, but um, yeah, get some, don't get, don't wear those fancy fig scrubs. Wear some sloppy loose scrubs and people will think you're going to do surgery. You know, our residents come popping in. They wear, they wear those tip. super tight fig scrubs. They look like models. And people are like, what is this guy doing? Well, he doesn't look like all the other doctors. <laughs> Sage advice. Yeah, Sage say, advice. advice. I love it. <laughs> so in thinking about your career, what do you feel is your greatest contribution to the field? Because you have many, but what do you feel was your greatest? Well, I guess I, I'm proud of whatever part I had in, in moving structured training forward. I think I had some role in that. We did an early study, which I think was the, it was definitely the first in ophthalmology. It was one of the first few studies in medicine that showed that some training intervention would have a downstream impact on, on the outcome of patients. And so we did a study where we, we had a series of residents that didn't have structured training and a series of residents that did have structured training, and their learning curves were dramatically different. And this is, this is one of the examples I'll tell you about Andy Lee, because I, I didn't understand how important this was when I first was showing him the data until he started doing flips and jumping up and down. And, you know, he was so excited about it. But in retrospect, it's so I think it's one of the more cited papers that I've been involved with. But the important thing is that if you can show that educational interventions have an impact, and it's probably much more of a powerful impact than some of the things that like the drugs we use or changing the tip on the FACO or 
or maybe even more powerful than FACO versus extra cap, you're on the truth. But if you can do educational things that will make a difference in the patient outcome, it gives some sort of credibility to the job that people like me are in. And I think that was helpful because a lot of people would come into jobs like mine and then, and then they would find that the academic world didn't accept them. They were not important because they weren't inventing new drugs or, or whatever, or they weren't getting big grants or whatever. Even though it was, it, and honestly, it's such a huge part of the world of make-believe of the residency, that doesn't mean that necessarily the chairman would recognize that or the, or the other faculty would recognize that. And so people would leave. So the classic thing, people come in a job like mine, and then they would leave after four or five years because they weren't getting the proper kudos and they weren't getting the proper sense that they were part of the deal. So to me, that was really important because I, I after that paper, there were a lot of people that started publishing in that way. And so I think that was that was important. The other kind of weird thing that and this is Andy and I did is we started the Journal of Academic Ophthalmology like 100 years ago. And it was like done in, in the basement of our, of our library. It was all done in paper because I wanted to be able to publish these sort of articles like this. And so we started this journal and we were publishing papers from people that were like us. And then we got really important people to be on the board. I was not on the board, but really important people like Andy Lee were on the board, editorial board. And it was hard to get it through. And eventually AEPO took it over. And so now AEPO runs it. It was kind of a cool thing because it, what it did was it opened the door for the possibility of educational publishing, which then allows somebody like me to have a CV which looks similar to somebody that's doing other stuff. You know? And so then you can get promoted. For those of our listeners, it's a it's over a 66-page CV, by the way. I've seen well, it. It's impressive. Well, that's that's uh, why we had to invent our own journal so that we could win it. It's a good strategy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, and and what's funny is it's it's just such a small world in ophthalmology. I mean, I forget that you and Andy Lee worked together because I worked with him when he, you know, when I was at Baylor, he was actually one of my letter writers. I mean, that's how small of a world this is. I, I got to get him on this show. He's got a, so much to, to talk about and say, and I, he's been such an incredible mentor to, to so many people. He has like 30 or 40 letters a year he, put, he cranks out. It's amazing. I mean, oh, I'm, yeah. not, I'm, not, yeah. no, it's, it's, I'm not saying it's you're incredible. special, but I'm just saying... What's, no, what, what's, no, it's it's amazing. No, that, but but that's how many people yeah, he yeah, mentors. I mean, that's what's so amazing. That's just that's the number of people he mentors a season, if you will. I mean, it's his incredible. Reach is, his reach is incredible. But you never, never, ever, ever accept a speaking position behind him. Even you, Morgan. Even great speaker like you do not ever speak after Andy Lee because you'll just look like a fool. You look like a fool. Uh, <laughs> he talks faster. He's got a million things to say. He, he just just cannot. You'll be You'll be it's his energy too. Go it's the four. energy. You know, he's got such incredible energy. In thinking about all the innovations you've seen over the years, we've talked about some of your contributions and educationally, but in terms of just innovations in ophthalmology, is there a certain innovation, device, implant, et cetera, that you feel really changed the way you practiced? Well, I, I mean, I think, you know, I was in the evolution from extra cap to FACO. So the small incision was important. And then the really big thing was when the lenses were foldable. So the initial switch to extra cap, from extra cap to faker, we still had six millimeter incisions or seven millimeter incisions to get the lens in. And so I think the combination of those two things was super powerful. And I was there, I had to learn that sort of after residency. And so that's probably another thing that helped me sort of figure out how to learn on your own or how to move forward on your own. Because we did very few of those when I was a resident. And so I, to me, that was the biggest change in my time. 
And then of course this this other giant thing of which I only have a small sort of interaction with, which is the injections. But in, in my role as a leader of the residency program, you know, the variety and frequency of injections has changed everything. Now, in some ways, it's generated interesting problems for you and me, because there's a significant number of people that have damaged to the capsule from those injections, which makes cataract surgery interesting. Yousef wrote one of the first papers on that from Emory. I don't know if it was when you were there, but he, he wrote that a paper showing how you can have these this damage to the capsule that you can't really see. It's sort of very subtle. But anyway, I think to, But we've all yeah, witnessed yeah. it. To me, um, <laughs> to me, those are the two giant things. Having come up in, in a time when learning about intravitreal injections, I mean, it was just part of our, you know, we, I did more intravitreal injections than any other procedure. Yeah, I'm sure you did, yeah. And to have that comfort, because I think that as we continue to advance, you know, these injectables won't just be for retina surgeons. I mean, we're already getting some stuff in the anterior segment, but it's not, you know, it's not as long lasting or repeatable yet, but I think we're going to get there. And I think there's going to be, I think that having that training of doing intravitreals will have been very, very beneficial. So I completely agree we're with gonna you. We're going to be injecting mitochondria into the back of the eye to make people, presbyopes, better. We're going to get all jazzed up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, and it, you know, the other thing is, is if the trends over the last 30 years continue, is there anything prospectively now, is there anything that you feel that you want or, or you think is on the horizon that you're excited about? Well, I think, you know, I think there's the question to me is, is there going to be some sort of mechanical interface that does the surgery? And that's what I think is really interesting. And there's a couple of companies now working on robotic surgery. And, you know, some of them are aimed at things like very precise injections, but it, see, it does seem like, you know, Femto was in some ways a, a move in that direction, but you could imagine in the space of the eye that you could potentially have some sort of robotic surgery. So I know, I know that's coming. I talked to this one company in Israel that's working on it. And then there's another company, uh, I think in Las Vegas that Uday was telling me about. So there's some people working on it, but and I, and I think... On the surface, it's very threatening to a young person like you that's got these amazing skills that wants to use them over time. But I guarantee you there's going to be, it's just going to create a new set of things for you to do, you know. I agree. Yeah, I agree. I'm, I don't think it's a threat. I think it's a, again, I think it's going to enable us to to take care of more patients. And, and you know, there's going to be some guys with giant eyebrows and there's no way that the robot can work. And they're going to have to bring you in. Here it comes Morgan. <laughs> that's right. Look at me. It'll be me. Right. I'll, you know, it'll be me. Yeah. But anyway, the, um, I think that's, you know, I'm really interested in, you know, the latest AI stuff. I do think in general that will have an effect on medicine, on medical education, because it's going to become clear that you don't have to be, it doesn't have to be quite as on the forefront. These, these, some of these arcane topics can be more possibly given to you quickly through the AI. It's already been useful to me. You know, I've already used it for various things. And I think that's going to get better. And hopefully you'll just be able to mumble a few words and get a paper, you know. And and, uh, and I think of all, of all the fields, we may be at the one that could be most autonomous. But we'll, we'll see. Tom, thank you so much for joining today and, and really giving your story and, and the evolution of education and the tools that are available to teach residents and the way that that's changed over the years. 
I sincerely appreciate all of your contributions. And thank you so much again for joining us today. Well, hey, thank you very much, Morgan. Appreciate it. To all our listeners out there, thank you so much for joining us on another episode of The History of Eye Care. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation and that you were able to take away some valuable insights into the modern history of education. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing to our podcast on your preferred platform and drop us a rating or a review as that'll help us reach more people to spread these fascinating stories. Don't forget to follow us on social media to stay up to date with our latest episodes and join in on the conversation. I want to take a quick moment to thank our sponsors for helping support this editorially independent content, in particular Alcon, who is a founding level sponsor of the season one of the History of Eye Care. Remember that by understanding the past, we can help to shape the future of eye care. Until next time, take care. And that concludes another episode of The History of Eye Care with your host, Dr. Morgan Micheletti. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing to the podcast on your preferred platform. Don't forget to follow us on social media to stay up to date with our latest episode information and to join in on the conversation.